the Film Society of Lincoln Center, you're listening to The Close-Up. Welcome to part two of our panel discussion, Film and Media in a Time of Repression, co-hosted by the Film Society and Film Quarterly. Let's go now to the conclusion of the discussion. The Film Society of Lincoln Center is a nonprofit that for nearly 50 years has served as New York's premier film organization, with screenings every day of the year at the Eleanor Bunin Monroe Film Center and the Walter Reed Theater. Visit today and see Raoul Peck's Academy Award nominee for Best Documentary Feature, I Am Not Your Negro, which provides an incisive look at race in America crafted through the words of James Baldwin. For showtimes and tickets, visit filmlink.org. Imani Perry, who's come up from Philadelphia to speak with us today and whose books and articles have really, really impressed me. Imani? Um, so I, um, I want to start with two, uh, two formulations that have been circulating in my mind. One is a friend of mine, Ashan Crawley, keeps posting and has posted pretty consistently but more frequently since the election Um, on social media, um, the two-word sentence, make art, um, as an imperative. And then the other is uh, a response that I had. I had, after the, on November 9th, I had a range of um, emotions um, and thoughts um, and sleepless nights. Um, And the one that actually um, kind of triggered anger for me was the recognition, the, re- the realization that my mother, who's in her early 70s, who was born and raised in Birmingham, Alabama, um, had grown up in a white nationalist state and was being forced to live in one again, um, and also a police state. Um, we think about um, George Wallace and Bull Connor. Um, um, and it was a recognition that whatever um, this in this particular moment also is that whatever this terror that Trumpism um, has triggered um, is actually not new. Um, it's a repetition. Uh, and in this immediate cycle, I think, for black Americans actually began in earnest in 2014, um, not this fall. Uh, so the phenomenon of, of uh, police officers killing unarmed um, African Americans was not new. It's so old that in my archival research I see um, discussions of it in newspapers in the 1930s, right? Even the very origin of of policing in this country is racialized in that sense. Um, But something distinct happened in August of 2014 um, in Ferguson, and that in response to the killing of Mike Brown, there's a stance on the part of citizens there, refusal to accept the regularity of the procedure of summary execution and summary judgment in the street without process, without courts, without deliberation. Um, Not that those afford any particular security, um, but they are sort of principles that we are supposed to hold. And so the residents of Ferguson refused the order of business, and it was then that the military weaponry came out. Um, uh, And the use of digital media following that um, moment allowed for networks of communication to travel that allowed us to tell the repetition, share the repetition of this story weekly and sometimes daily, a harrowing repetition 
um, of the fact that minor infractions might lead to one's death. Um, uh, and it does not appear to be either accidental or incidental that they are all to a one without remedy, even in the cases of the children, seven years old, 10 years old, 12 years old, 13 years old, right? No one is to blame. Um, and so there was this, you know, in the past, in the intervening years, people repeatedly said, well, the witnessing of footage would change the nation. That the problem wasn't that people didn't care, it was that they didn't know. Um, and so there was a, 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 a repeated visual, um, a cyclical visual on corporate news sites of um, death. Um, but the past two years haven't borne that out. In fact, um, what they um, have borne instead is a president-elect um, uh, of the sort that we have. One of the things I noticed um, last year uh, oh, actually, earlier this year, is that oftentimes, you know, that I have cycles of um, harassment on social media. Uh, much of it is misogynistic. It's interesting. It's the one arena in which I get more um, hostility on the basis of gender than race. Um, uh, and um, so I began to notice early this year that oftentimes um, those who would call me, um, you know, cunt, bitch, et cetera, et cetera, had Trump logos. Um, on uh, the the tops of their um, of their Twitter profiles, or I also had people who uh, of this sort who would attempt to call me on Facebook, and you can call people on Facebook, and um, and if they couldn't because they couldn't reach me, because I didn't answer the phone from strangers, would say you know things about Trump, and also in addition to all of these um, slurs, um, and what it indicates, right, is that. Um, uh, these, you know, this um, rise of a kind of um, um, celebratory, old-fashioned forms of bigotry um, uh, goes along with this conception amongst those who um, believe those things, uh, have those values that, that the president-elect is both their champion and their hero. Um, his appointments suggest that he's not, in fact, their hero, that he, um, but that rather the sort of vitriolic bigotries um, while uh, something that he feeds off of or, or not, he doesn't indicate, there's no suggestion that he's actually going to operate um, with the interests of, as um, the media has, has now um, rediscovered the category working class in the society, and particularly a white working class. It's, fa it's fascinating. Um, uh, but what's, what, what's also an interesting dimension of this is in, in light, and this sort of um, goes back to the previous panel, right? The, in light of uh, the precarity that goes along with neoliberal forms of governmentality, um, what is being exchanged is a promise of old-fashioned conventional forms of hierarchies, of race, of gender, of sexuality, such that the market, com the frame of market competition will at least be narrower. There will be some people who will be entirely pushed out um, of, of the frame. Um, um, so what, um, so his agenda is something more than a nationalist one. It is in some ways a social Darwinistic one um, in which accumulation and exploitation are virtues. Um, and rather than interdependence, we ought to be, the, what's promised is that we ought to be locked in a battle royale with everyone in our midst um, for spoils. Um, and so um, I do think art matters now a great deal. But what I keep, I actually, it's interesting because I keep going back to the past and in response to the question 
um, I immediately thought of, and I it actually wasn't, it was less a thought, it was more of a kind of um, an emotional response. I thought about um, uh, Yuzan Palsy's Sugarcane Alley, which I saw as a child in the theater. And the film had um, an immediate resonance for me, um, in part because it was filled with brown children like me. Um, uh, it took place um, in the 1930s, and so there was a resonance with my, my um, grandmother's generation. She was, uh, grew up in a, an agricultural context in rural Alabama. This was Martinique. Um, uh, uh, but like the children in the film who sat at elders' knees and heard stories of the old days, um, I did the same. Uh, like me, they were children who were caught in the interstices of legacies of colonial domination, exploitative labor relations, and racism. Um, and yet watching the film and reading subtitles, they were speaking French instead of English. Um, so there's this, there's, there was this uh, repetition of similar circumstances um, and also uh, res a re realization of um, the satellites of empire that are shared. Um, so it was uncanny, right? So um, both incredibly familiar and unfamiliar. And so I, 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 I think that film is important in this moment because we have to reckon with the fact of our world. And so not just the immediacy of the threats to us as individuals, but global systems of power, inequal, unequal distributions of risk and of suffering domestically and internationally. And I think that part of what the moment occasions is, you know, if we see the moment as a reckoning, um, is an opportunity for, for thinking about the ways that art can do this for us, um, that it can move us, and that we, in fact, uh, there's an imperative that we are moved. Um, if we take advantage of the opportunity of the moment, I think it will produce an urgency far greater than what's going to happen at the midterm elections um, and who gets more seats um, and, 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 and perhaps make us actually witness um, Aleppo and Haiti in a moment like this. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so the, the, um, I had a, have a few images. So the, um, the Roy de Carve is a 1949 photograph um, called Graduation. Um, and, the re the, the, um, and this, is, uh, this image resonates for me um, because the dynamic relationship between the kind of care and celebration that's evidenced in her adornment and the ruins um, and uh, uh, sort of the, the cutting into the decay of the city, but also um, a posture of, res of, of resistance that comes through care um, is something that DeCarve, I think, captures beautifully here. Um, it's in Harlem. And then the, the next um, image um, uh, is a 1956 image in Shady Grove, Alabama, taken by Gordon Parks. Gordon Parks, um, wrote a bunch of memoirs. I think there are five, and most of them begin in Alabama, which is fascinating because he's from Kansas. But there's something about the experience in Alabama, and of course, you know, my my I was born in Alabama, so there's a there's a, a, a kind of personal resonance. But um, uh, I think you know, I think sort of part of what, what our fear in this moment, right, is the closing of the doors. These are children who are looking in on a fair that's segregated that they can't um, uh, participate in. Um, 
and at the same time, again, um, we can see how the children are attended to. So actually, one of the things, and I've talked about this with Arthur J. Frey and with Fred Moten, the, the question, can blackness be loved, troubles me, because who is the question being posed to? Because these children are loved, I was loved, I, it's loved, right? It's just to whom, you know, that, that, that. The orientation of the question actually um, presumes that some that the question is more important for some than others. So the care um, that is uh, evidenced in the adornment of these children who are excluded from the society, um, uh, I think is, a, is, is, instruct, is instructive for this moment. And then the last image I have, and I'm going to end quickly, is a, um, is a 19th century mugshot. Um, uh, and I love, you know, it's, it's beautiful. Um, and there's this woman with this Gibson girl hairdo. Um, we don't know what she did. Um, uh, but again, I think it's this sort of residence um, of attention to beauty under conditions of captivity, um, exclusion, and destruction. I think that there's something about beauty that ignites the imagination, the sense of possibility. Um, we have a lot of discourses of constraint in our political culture, but also in our, our social worlds. There's a lot of discussion about what can't be done. Um, and there's actually a lesson in the president-elect's complete lack of constraint. Um, he's not afraid to imagine um, a fascistic state um, and what in a kind of thoroughgoing architecture of exclusion and domination. But what if we who believe in freedom um, allowed our imaginations to be ignited and to imagine freely? What might we be able to do then? Oh, thank you. Great ending. Fabulous. 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 Um, Bo Williman um, agreed to come tonight as long as I didn't make him talk about television. And in fact, I want him to talk instead um, about this new political network that he's creating, co-creating. So, um, Bo Willman. Hi. Do you have a uh, mic? Here, take a mic. I'm not going to use the mic. Um, so, <laughs> I, uh, I, I, I am pulling kind of a Ready? fast Hold one. They have to for the recording. For the technically recording. For posterity, use a mic. Well, <laughs> I'm not going to use a mic. Okay. I'm not going to use a mic for part of this. I'm going to... And, and there's an important reason why. So I, yeah, I pulled a little bit of a fast from here. I have nothing to offer on film or television tonight. Um, and I would ask, uh, while, I mean, th this is being recorded from posterity, I would ask that you don't record or take photographs during the next 10 minutes, during my, my 10 minutes with you. Because I actually want this moment for these next 10 minutes to be about this gathering of people in a physical space, sharing a present moment together. And that will get to what I've been up to over the past four weeks um, and, and, and why it's important to feel that. Now, I'll, I'll do this because they want me to. But um, the, the day of the election, I was in Miami of all places uh, because I was supposed to participate in a summit uh, the next day, which is a bunch of smart people getting together, doing keynotes and panels, events like this. Um, and I was supposed to do a presentation on the future of storytelling and content, blah, blah, blah. And I, I uh, called the founders of the summit that night uh, when it became clear who was going to win. And I said, uh, I'm sorry, I have to bail on the summit because I can't justify um, participating in the summit for three days when I can take a flight back to New York, immediately start making calls, activating my network. We have uh, you know, 
two and a half months until the inauguration, and we have one year, 364 days until the midterm elections. So I'm going to bail, unless, unless I can reprogram part of this summit to gather some of the smart minds that will be there in a physical space like this, and we can immediately begin talking about concrete action items um, right away. They gave me the time and the resources to do that, and so my next three days became about organizing these action sessions. Uh, I said from the get-go during these sessions, which were under impossibly broad banners like social justice or climate or women's rights and health, but you know, those, those were there to give some direction to discussion. I said, this space is not about processing or analysis or grief. There will be plenty of spaces to do that at the summit and elsewhere in your life. What this is about is concrete action. So if you have a concrete action that you want to offer, do so. Or if you have something you want to work on concretely, but you don't know how, bring it up and someone in this room may be able to give you some direction. Now, of course, the responses we got from people, the offerings of concrete action, were all over the place to start. They were a bit scattered. But what was happening in that room, far more important even than the concrete actions that were offered, were people who were gathered in a space, who were standing up and saying, looking each other in the eye with their physical presence, I commit to doing something, to taking my passion, my energy, my expertise, my money, whatever resources and time I can manage to actually do something. And when you do that in front of other people and you know those people are saying and doing the same thing back to you in your presence, it creates a shared responsibility and peer accountability that will motivate and sustain your action over time. When I finished the summit, I thought, well, this was pretty productive. A lot of people had offered a lot of concrete stuff. A lot of people had made connections and partnerships that they were going to move forward on together out of that summit. And I thought, well, what if I try to replicate this in other cities? So I started calling friends in my personal network. Uh, and I said, this is what I did at the summit. How about we do it in your town? The response was enthusiastic and unanimous. So I thought, well, what if I broaden this a little bit and encourage people in general through my means and social media um, and, and my very, 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 very minor celebrity uh, in terms of my ability to, to reach people, say, hey, I want folks out there to start forming action groups. Start gathering your friends, your family, and your colleagues right away. Pick something that you care about and commit to a concrete action that you can work on together. Within hours, I was being flooded by responses across the country. Within a couple days, I had heard from thousands of people within 50 states uh, in over 150 cities who wanted to form action groups. It very quickly got to an influx that I couldn't manage on, uh, manage on my own, so I, I began to hire uh, full-time staff uh, to help me organize and to help me administrate all of this. Um, in the past four weeks, uh, we have begun to do outreach to every single person in the country that's reached out to us that said they want to form an action group uh, to help give them basic tr training and a toolkit to organize uh, in their area. Um, we, we envision these action groups and, and really what the way they're meant to function is that these are groups of 10 to 50 people who gather either in a space like this or in someone's living room or after bowling on Tuesday nights, but on a regular basis with a group leader, they discuss the things that are important to them 
and then they proceed to act on them. And we will help give the resources and the training that they need. We will also be able to link larger organizations that have been fighting the good fight for decades to these organized groups on the ground. In our network, we will be able to connect these groups to one another, also to other pre-existing organizations, both on the local and national level. The groups will be able to communicate. They will be able to share resources. And if you're someone in the suburbs of Akron, Ohio, who's never been politically active in your life, Life, but you feel the need to get involved, then you can find us, you can look at Ohio, you can go to Akron, you can go, oh look, there's four groups that are in Akron, Ohio, working on X, Y, Z, and Omega. Omega floats my boat, I'll have a contact, in for, uh, contact for that group leader, I'll be able to contact that person and immediately become part of a group. Now, why did I not want to speak with the microphone? Maybe it's because I came out of the theater, and when I speak like this, my voice is going directly from my lungs and my diaphragm through the air into your eardrum. We are sharing the same air molecules. That sounds pretty new agey, but it's actually a physical, it's a physical and chemical reaction that is happening right now that cannot be replicated because it is these people in this room at this moment breathing this air, feeling these things. And when you can belong to a group of people from your community, a small group of people, you have a sense of belonging, shared responsibility, and peer accountability that is not the same as signing up for your monthly donation to the ACLU. And it is something that the left has failed on in the past three decades, which is organizing room by room on the ground. And you gotta roll up the sleeves and you gotta do it and it's gotta be room by room. Now, I, have been to seven states in the past three and a half weeks. I have done meetups in New York, Los Angeles, San Francisco, St. Louis, Charlotte, North Carolina, Austin, Texas, Santa Fe. I'm going to Baltimore on Saturday. And what is incredibly important about the sort of you know, decentralized approach that we're taking of groups determining for themselves what they care about is that one, their skin has to be in the game, and two, you cannot create a grassroots movement from the top down. You can't do it with, with top-down messaging. You can't do it by anticipating what you think people want to hear. You actually have to go and talk to them, and you have to listen. And to give you a sense of how complex our country is right now, if you weren't already aware, um, you know, I've sat down in rooms with people that are as radical and subversive as you could possibly imagine on the left. But also, I'm living in a world where the woman who helped me organize the meetup in Charlotte, North Carolina, which was a room of 200 liberal people, more or less, that believed Dr Donald Trump was a fascist demagogue, she voted for Trump. This is a college-educated professional woman who, if you asked her what her reasoning was for why she voted for Trump, a decision she agonized over, um, you will hear an argument that might not be your math, but is also not a stupid argument. She would hold up in debate class. And when I said, why are you helping me organize a group of 200 liberals in Charlotte, North Carolina, who think the man you voted for is a fascist demagogue, she said, well, I don't think he's as scary as you do, and I don't think he's gonna do all the things he claimed he would during his campaign bluster phase, but I am pro-choice, despite the fact that I'm deeply conservative, and my brother-in-law, yeah, uh, look, we can roll our eyes and we can laugh, but this is, yeah. 
Yeah, but but the the the, the but her brother-in-law is also the son of undocumented immigrants, and she said, if Trump comes after Roe v. Wade or starts to pursue draconian immigration policy, I don't want to see that happen. And if you're gathering a bunch of people, even if they're liberal, who will work towards safeguarding those two things, I find that to be a value. And her father, a staunch conservative also, paid for the neighborhood theater where we all met. That's extraordinary to me because, yes, we must resist and we must also understand that there are people like this woman in Charlotte, North Carolina, who while we might disagree with her on 85% of the things that we would discuss, there is an asset there, there is a resource there, there is someone that we can at least on those two issues pull into the fold and who committed time, money, and resources to organizing a room of people that look like this. So, <clears throat> I've had the great pleasure over the last several years of serving on the Writers Guild of America East Council uh, with Walter Bernstein, um, a man who at the young age of 97 has seen a lot, um, has survived a lot, has suffered and seen others suffer because of regimes like the one we are about to endure. And what he said tonight, in which you've heard almost, you know, all of us echo in one way or form or another, uh, is that, it, it, you know, and you're hearing this from a couple guys who make their living writing words uh, in, the, in the realm of make-believe, uh, you know, we, we agonize over the words that we write. We bang our head against the wall in terms of the words that we write. But he said it at the beginning of the night, do not mistake words for action. And so while I make a living uh, as a writer, uh, more important than that, uh, I'm a person who lives in a community that is a country. Um, I was going to say I'm a citizen, but you don't need to be a citizen to care about this country. Uh, and, and I think it's very important as we consider what happened, what history tells us, what we can learn from it, what we can process and experience emotionally and intellectually through our art as we look for ways to tell stories moving forward, we don't lose sight of this simple fact, that it requires bodies in a room and sometimes bodies in a state house and sometimes bodies on a street. And it requires the actual physical meeting of people and at times physical resistance in order to combat what we have coming down the pike in a few short weeks. So I'm here not tonight uh, to recruit <laughs> and to organize. And there's 100 people in this room. And I'm going to give you a direct action that you can walk away with tonight. So I asked you to put all your phones away. Now I want you to all take them out. All right? Take them out. Take your phones out right now. If you don't have a phone, you have a piece of paper and a pen. This is what I'm going to end with. Um, <clears throat> all of you know someone that does not live in New York City. I'm from St. Louis, Missouri. That's where I went for the holidays. And it's, it's a different world. And many of you come from parts of the country that are not Los Angeles or New York City. Or you have family members there. Or someone you went to school with lives there. And what I want you to do right now is write down the name of at least one of those people. I'm going to bring these people up while you're doing this. Yep. Write, write down that name, please. Type it into your phone. 
email it to yourself. And I want you to commit that within 24 hours, you're going to call that person. You're not going to text them. You're not going to email them. You're not going to message them on Signal or Facebook. You're going to actually call that person, whether they're in Tulsa, Oklahoma, or upstate New York, or whether they're in Memphis, Tennessee, or whether they're in a rural community in Idaho. And you're going to ask them what this election has meant to them. You're going to ask them what their concerns are about the world that we're about to embark upon uh, January 20th. And you're going to listen. And then you're going to ask how you can help. One of the major things I've experienced is I've made my way around the country, particularly in places like Texas and North Carolina uh, and New Mexico, is there's a lot of the country that feels like the people in this room don't give two shits about them, that we don't understand or listen to them. And you cannot fight your enemy unless you understand them. And you'll often find that sometimes among your enemies are allies. So you can begin the process within 24 hours, if you haven't already, of getting to know your enemy slash ally and maybe also finding a concrete way that you can be of help elsewhere in the country besides the cushiony New York City that we live in where 90% of the people on this island didn't vote for Trump because there are pl people you know in places for whom it was the other way around and we need to be in touch and working with those people too. That's it. Thanks so much. Thanks so much. We still have some time. I got everybody back up here. And uh, we can talk among ourselves and we can talk with you. And um, listening to Bo and listening to these calls for action and listening to a lot of the analysis that we've heard tonight, um, you know, it reminded me of something I've been thinking about, which is this whole question of fake news and how to know what to trust and how to know what we're reading. And even to the point where people on Facebook are correcting each other, like, take that down, that's not real, what's your source? And then at the same time, you know, have putting things up that are real and having them ignored because people may not believe them. And I started thinking, I wish we could have, you know, some kind of watermark. I wish we could have something like, uh, you know, in the 1950s, the Ladies Home Journal used to give a seal of approval to products that you could trust, you know, or the underwriter's laboratory would put UL on an electrical appliance and then you knew it wouldn't explode when you plugged it in or, or some kind of symbol for halal or for kosher. So I need some kind of symbol like that um, going online or looking on screens to know this is tr uh, trustworthy. Like where's, where's, where's my, uh, my group, where's my meeting, you know, for that. That's, that's what I would go for. But we've heard a lot about contradiction. We've heard about amnesia. We've heard about trauma and memory, um, about questions of address, who is included in questions, who is not, who is being addressed, who is being spoken on behalf of or for, um, who is here, who's out there, who are we, who are they. Um, and what happens under these different regimes, the kinds of stories that um, Walter brought, that Natalia and Susanna brought, that Angela brought, um, the kind of examples that Michael was giving. Um, I want to hear what you have to ask. I want to hear what panelists have to say to each other. We have a little bit of time left. Um, I think it's been incredibly inspiring. I want to keep that going. Yeah. And uh, let the mic come to you and identify yourself so we know who's talking. Yeah. 
Okay, my name is Lynn Miller-Lockman, and I blog about a lot of these issues. I also spend part of my year in Portugal, and I have been to the Museum of, um, of Resistance, and definitely recommend anybody who goes to Lisbon um, go to the Resi Museum of Resistance and Liberation. Uh, but one of the interesting things about that museum and of my own um, research into the history of Portugal is the way that um, the movement was so clandestine and how people really had to hide. Um, and there were very small cells of people who were able to act because, you know, if one of the cells was arrested, um, that it wouldn't be everybody who was in resistance in that neighborhood or in that city who um, would be arrested. And Walter, um, I really appreciated your presentation to Walter Bernstein about um, the whole issue of the blacklist and you could get off the blacklist by giving names. Well, now we get to this organization, Bo Wilman, that you started. And nowadays, we don't need to have to hide, or we don't know how to hide. And the authorities don't need a blacklist or torture, because you can just go on to Twitter or Facebook. How do you deal with that if we're going to be resisting a police state? Well, I think there's a question for anybody up here. Yeah, Ruth. Well, but there's there there may not. Who knows? Well, Newt Gingrich was calling already for some form of uh, new House and American activities. But Trump has been training uh, various constituencies for some time, and one thing he started to do was with the press. He's denying access. He did it selectively, and then the whole you know. Authoritarians are very into spatial politics, right? So the way he set up his rallies where the press was put in a pen and they were slowly, you know, it was very interesting because plenty of people in America already hated African Americans, they already hated Hispanics, and but some of them were taught to hate the mainstream press to a degree they hadn't hated before. So he put them in a pen which criminalized them. So denying access selectively and then to entire media units was a first form of doing this kind of thing. And then we don't know what else will evolve. Would you like? Uh, as I understand it, you were saying that uh, if somebody signs up for Bose organization or whatever, uh, they're going to know about it. The authorities are going to know about it. Of course, they're going to know. They know about it anyway. I'm, you know, uh, there's very little, if anything, of you that's still secret. You know, and uh, at the moment, you know, we don't have the necessity to hide. Uh, perhaps it may come, and if it does, uh, knowing how to hide or learning how to hide comes fairly easy. Yeah. We'll find out soon enough how to do it. Yeah. And, and don't forget, I mean, I, I, I was, you know, there's always this drive to claim a kind of 
heroism in advance of action also. And I would just say that, you know, you, you'll, there's a long ways to go before they're going to be after many of us. And let's, let's do something to, to warrant that first, you know. And, mm -hmm. and also, it, also, you know, I, I did anti-Cuba work in the 1970s. I was threatened with libel suits. I had letters to editors denouncing me as a foreign agent. I had the Center for Constitutional Rights defending me. And when I picked up my phone in Chicago to make a call, I'd hear the two guys talking on the phone who were bugging my line. I said, would you please hang up? I got to make a call. <laughs> so, you know, it's not like this is this giant monster behind the screen. Yes, you figure out how you're going to move through that. And, you know, and then you figure out what you can do. I'm more concerned with what we can do that's effective than what's going to stop us. I'll just put that out there. Maybe, yeah. Maybe just one last yeah. Uh, wait, you need a mic. Where's the mic at that end? Should be on the f floor. Um, that has come up in that I feel most uh, crucial and important right now, and it's the question of trying to uh, beforehand generate sanctuary spaces and so many people involved in education, whether it's a high school and elementary or a college level or community colleges, because there are, there's such an enormous amount of uh, people in this country, not only through the DACA program, but ev even outside of the DACA program, that enter into pre-forms of citizenship and just belonging through public education, and those people are terrified right now. Mm -hmm. And so, so many campuses, university campuses across the US have started these petitions, sending to their chancellors, their presidents, like we want to become sanctuary campuses. We need to be, and this is a question of action, we need to be educated by lawyers who have been working on this issue because we're all signing these petitions, but what exactly does that mean? Like, mm -hmm. do, do, is it possible for any of these physical spaces, which are schools, which are universities, to become places where these uh, children, students, and their families, because that's the problem, is that all these schools, even if they resist not giving up their names, all their files contain the information and all these, you know, thousands, probably millions of undocumented families that will get deported. Um, I think the sanctuary movement, though, um, as someone who works inside a university, it also serves another, it serves another purpose, in a sense. Um, you know, apropos of, of flying something and see who, who, who lines up where. This is the way that you do find out in something fairly innocent, where nothing is at stake really for people personally, whether or not they're going to back this. And you really find out an aspect of, of you know, where people are going to stand. You can encourage people to take this small step. This is a small step. This is a harmless step to speak up for this and to get together and do this as a community, you know, so. And the, just the, for a foot, the just sanctuary, a foot, yeah. uh, sanctuary campuses and city movement is well underway. Uh, you know, student organizations, obviously, you know, they, they, you got that young, that young blood uh, jumping into the mix pretty quickly. So you've started to see that on campuses. But for instance, I was speaking to a city council member of Santa Fe um, a few days ago. Tomorrow, the city council of Santa Fe will introduce resolutions to make Santa Fe a sanctuary city. Uh, and they're already looking at how they're going to uh, deal with uh, federal funding being 
taken away from them if Trump follows through on his threat, not that he's empowered to, but Congress is, uh, to take away federal funding. They, they, were, they are going to look at the budget and how they will cope with that and telling their citizens, we're still going to provide the services we need to provide you, um, even if we don't get federal dollars. Uh, and I was speaking to an attorney general of a state, which I can't mention here publicly, uh, who said that lawyers are already looking into the loopholes that can prevent the federal government from actually taking away federal funds. But the fact that a city, an actual municipal government, is willing to say we are willing to relinquish federal funds to make this public sta statement as a municipality and as your elected officials is exactly the sort of pressure points that we can put on communities around the country where people on a local level can be lobbying their city councils, their county commissions or county boards uh, uh, to to follow a model resolution to become a sanctuary city. And if you don't do it, then you will get punished at the ballot box. Um, so, so these are the sort of actions that one can take. Also, I just want to add to that, don't underestimate the symbolic significance of these cultural spaces, like the one that we're sitting in now. You know, I'm so grateful to Eugene and Dennis, Brian and, and Lisa for opening up uh, Film Study Lincoln Center for us to be meeting here now. And yeah, and I told a Cuba story from the past, but I didn't mention the footnote. Lincoln Center was bombed for having a Cuban dance company appear here. That happened. We're talking about memory and amnesia. Mm -hmm. That happened right here in New York. Film Forum had to hire 24-hour security guards when they did a, screen, a, a series of Cuban films. The Cuban right wing was bombing airlines and killing people and going unpunished. So these cultural spaces also need to be claimed, defended, used, and appreciated as we march forward into this new period with all kinds of organizing. Don't, f don't forget about them, too. Yeah, we've got some questions out here. Uh, yeah. uh, my name is Jim Forat, and uh, I just want to remind people, too, that the mayor of New York City marched into one of the larger spaces here at Lincoln Center and pulled out uh, the Palestinian leader who was sitting watching a concert, took him out. And that caused a lot of pushback. I, just w I work with a group called Gays Against Guns that came out after the Pulse shooting. It's an inclusive, it's not an exclusively gay organization, it's inclusive of multi-issues. And we have talked a lot about what do we do now. And one of the things that we, we felt is, within our own group, by talking about how we were feeling, is that people were afraid. The, the, the kind of manipulation of fear that the campaign and the media has created, how do you deal with fear? So one of the, our actions has been, one of our affinity groups, is that we're going around town singing Christmas carols that we have rewritten with very radical messages within them to give people, and asking people to come and join us and sing along with us so that we're working against this normalization, number one, and number two, we're doing it openly as people from an organization called GAG, or G Gays Against Guns, to say that identity politics does not, there's a real attack on identity politics now, and some of it for very legitimate reasons. But the reality is, when you know who you are, which was what the basics of identity politics from my generation was about, you can then look and sit in a room, be in the same boat with lots of other people who are looking at who they are, and we have to find out what we have in common. 
everyone doesn't have to do the same action. That's what's really good about this action network idea. Figure out what you want to do and find those friends or new friends that want to do the same thing. It's, there's many fingers on, a, on, the, on the fist or the hand of resistance, and just do that. And be not afraid, we live in this intensely surveilled society. One of the things that we're doing is not being afraid to show our faces, knowing full well how that can be dangerous. But just fuck it, you know, we cannot, all live underground. And those people that want to live underground and those people that want to organize that way, I say, good speed. But we want to be very public in this resistance, and we want to be very diverse in who we are. And we don't all have to work together. We don't have to all love each other. But, but we're, we're looking at, I'm a white gay man. I'm trying to look at how do I not dominate this meeting? How do I not, you know, because of the privilege and the skills that I might have verbally, how do I not do that in the larger world outside? And, and this goes way back to the early days of, of organizing the gay liberation fronts and the, women, the tools that women brought in from women's liberation. Everyone has a voice. Help them find it. Great. Thank you, Jen. Down here, Regina. We got one right here. Yeah. Um, my question is for Natalia. Um, you expressed some ambivalence about the, um, the efficacy of political cinema today. I was wondering what your opinions on the weakness of kind of revolutionary aesthetics of European or American avant-garde is today. And then you also mentioned a few films by like Pedro Costa, and I was wondering if you think that the future of political cinema is post-colonial and not the European avant-garde as it was 50 years ago. Thank you. Um, yes, I mean, I think that the, the failure of political, I mean, the, its gains, but also its long-term failure is, comes hand in hand with the failure of socialist revolutions of the 1960s or starting from the 1950s on, right? Meaning we live in this post-1989 world where you know, neoliberalism as the most recent form of capitalism has just become the norm everywhere in the world, right? Um, so, so that the failure of political cinema and, you know, it's iteration in the 60s and 70s, I think is related to that other failure because that was what it was uh, coming with, you know? It was at the service of those social movements and those political revolutions. Um, and I think we're in a very different moment today so that I think that also the very avant-garde aesthetic that was played out in most of the political cinema of the 1960s and 70s, and which, I mean, it's interesting, I, I don't think when I think of that cinema, I think that it was a cinema coming out of Latin America, out of Africa, and out of Asia, but not necessarily um, out of the US and nor Europe, right? I mean, um, and I, yes, I mentioned Costa, and, and I mentioned work like Susana's, um, or work uh, like Pacencinas, um, and I do, I do think that it's, it's kind of the, the, the multiple, uh, 
uh, practices and aesthetics of the post-colonial, you know, and post-colonial and sometimes ex-third world, we don't call it that anymore, right? Um, uh, but I still use that term because I think it refers uh, easily to the vast majority of the world today. Um, still, we need, so we need and I new think words. <laughs> yeah, mm. and I, in few words, and I think that that is where that cinema is coming from, and that it's a lot of collective work being done. Um, yeah, but I think it's it's different. It, it in, in as much as it's collective work or it's historical work in the way, the kind of historical work that someone like Susana does or Paso Encina in Paraguay, um, working through archives that have been repressed and that have much to teach us in how we engage and we activate, we don't only contemplate, but we activate those archives, which is what you know the work of someone like Susana is doing. Um, that is where we will learn our lessons, but those are—they're not going to necessarily be high modernist lessons. They're—they're they're the lesson of high modernism in film, but that has passed through television, that has passed through you know the emergence of digital culture. I wish sometimes that there were things like Netflix series being done in the third world, but we there is th there there is no resource to do that kind of work. Right, because I, I, I'm saying that I wish because I, it would be interesting to see what a, that kind of storytelling, right, a, in the way that it has taken on a, f uh, a, a political message here in the U.S. That kind of new serial, a, you know, a television. A, but that that th th there is no material structure for that in 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 Latin America or in the post-colonial world. So I do think that it's out of these more film collective practices where they they decide on their aesthetic and that's why I think there's multiple forms of it, right? But it is the return of history, whether it's post-colonial or you know, otherwise. Mm. Michael. Um, yeah, go yeah on, go on. to just go ahead and add to that, I mean, I would, this question of the failure of a political cinema here in the context of, say, the history of American film, um, I think you really might want to think about revisiting the L.A. Rebellion, uh, because what you're talking about in terms of a failure of political cinema, to me in some ways is more through a more prescriptive lens of an immediacy of, okay, I've done this film and then it's going to affect some kind of causality of immediate change. I don't think that you can apply that to something like the LA Rebellion, which to me is the most exquisite measure of a kind of black and perfect cinema, which is also a kind of exquisite measure of thinking of, you know, Bob Stam talks about this, of this idea of third and the first, of third cinema being animated in a first world context. So, I would really, you know, I, if you're not familiar with the LA Rebellion, I strongly encourage you to think about There's that in book. terms. There's a new book. There's a new book. I would revisit the UCLA Archive Project. I would actually even look at the program that was here at Lincoln Center on Tell It Like It Is, of looking at black independent cinema in New York City. I think you might want to kind of broaden your measure of what might constitute a political cinema. Is okay. Because there's, I think it's still alive and well particularly in the context of thinking about the idea of black film. Yeah. Hey guys, so I, um, I'm Olivia Harris, or Olivia Gray, um, 
and I'm 23. I recently graduated college, thank God. And um, I've noticed a really interesting thing going around with my peers, people my age, people I went to school with, people who are didn't go to college and don't. I studied international affairs, so I kind of have a very particular view of the world. And so when I see in them and, and I go to the protests, especially minorities, whether you're black, Spanish, or you know Chinese, you know a, any type of Asian, there's so much anger and so much hatred. Um, I just recently went to a um, protest um, against the shooting. It was another young black kid got shot, and it was. I think it was like the latest protest where hundreds and like thousands of people went to the streets and it was the most beautiful thing because every time I turned around it was somebody of a different color and somebody who was just so passionate about you know what was going on and then I stepped back and it was we were in Times Square and these two people were arguing against a cop saying oh we're gonna shoot you we're gonna do this to you and there's there's such an interesting juxtaposition when you take Individualities based on you know different cultures, but also based on different professions, and then it, based on different um, ethnicities, and and you try to say, oh, we want to stand up for our own rights, we want to stand up for our own freedoms, and then you have the backlash, which we've seen with supporters of Trump, who say, well, okay, what about us? We want to stand up for our own rights too, and so I think um, with that juxtaposition, in you know individualness, individuality. I, I want to think that there's a possibility that there, a, a hand can be reached across the table from minorities and people who look like me, people who look nothing like me, and we can say, hey, let's talk about it. But when I talk to my friends and when I talk to other people who don't necessarily have the outlook on the world that I do, they say, no, what are we gonna talk to them for? We're tired of being shot and killed in the streets for no reason. We're tired of this, we're tired of that. And I think what a beautiful thing that a film that I've been seeing in art is that just like the humanity, like Moonlight, I haven't seen it yet. But <laughs> I feel like, I know, right? I need to run, I need to run and go see it. But like the, the beauty of, of showing humanity in somebody who is portrayed in the media as a as a, um, um, like a, what's the word? As, 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 a, as um, an enemy, in a sense, in a way. And to, to show the humanity in that, and I, I have so much, you know, in what Bo and, and Imani, what you guys were saying about, you know, being able to reach across the table, being able to, to get that perspective, I have so much hope in that. But I, I kind of want to pose the question and, you know, see your opinion on, is there actually any hope in that? And I feel like there, there is, but at the same time, Trump just won. Yeah, so I, one of the, uh, there's a lot of righteous rage, right? There's a reason to be angry. Um, and one of the things that I, um, my immediate reaction frequently, because there's also a lot of criticism of modes of protest, um, which are often about tone and language and gesture when we're talking about death, right? So that the attention, that for the attention to focus on um, the performance of rage 
um, actually pivots our attention. And, and my, my child who's in eighth grade had this. He said, he came back home and he said, oh, all these people in my class say Black Lives Matter is violent. And I said, well, the premise of the organization is the ending of violence, right? That's a very, but, um, and so what you're really talking about for the most part is, is, is um, an effort to regulate language, to, e to regulate expressions of rage. Um, and the reason that I think that's troubling is that despite the fact that it's so common, it's so frequent that people say uh, rioting and rage and, and angry protests or destruction of property don't produce anything, history actually shows that's not true. Um, the quote-unquote riots, the rebellions, produced integration in higher education. It didn't happen after the marches in Selma. It happened after people were burning streets, right? Um, the diversification of the media. Black people being on television for the first time. That's a response, right? So um, uh, the shift in the political landscape, all these things. So um, it's hard. To, so I think the question has to be posed is in a different way, which is, does it take this? to have people respond, right? The question should be, why does it take this, right? Why does the reaching of the hand across the aisle not work, right? That's the question, you know? And I don't, I don't think that, I don't, I'm not hopeless, but I think that that's a moral question that has to be posed to this country writ large. You know, what, what I'd like to do is take a number of these questions and then let the panel answer. So if you can just be to the point, I wanna hear if there's a lot of people here waiting to speak, so let's do that. Yeah. But I should go ahead. Yeah. Okay. The question I have, which is a concern for those of us who are filmmakers and media makers, is is um, it's it's one thing to sort of make work um, in this time. And sometimes the work is small and meant to be immediate, you know, and meant to elicit action. And then there's work that's more of a, like a full-length film that's more reflective, maybe something like Raoul Peck's recent film, which I highly recommend. Um, what are the thoughts on terms of distribution? Because, you know, when a lot of these films were made, you know, it, there weren't that many filmmakers, it, you know, and now we're dealing with a, a very saturated media world. Um, and also a world where so much of the way we distribute things, which has been very effective, like on Facebook and other platforms, is someone else's platform that we don't have control over and can easily be clamped down. Um, so are there thoughts from anyone of the panel about yeah. the challenges of distribution and, um, and ways of affecting change through our arts? Good, we're gonna hold that and we're gonna keep going and then get more, get more answers, yep. Hi, <coughs> my name is Rafiq Katwari. I'm an American Muslim, and I'm also the first non-Irish recipient of the Patrick Kavanaugh Poetry Award. Um, I'm gutted that no one talked about Islamophobia. However, uh, my friend Tabishtin is a British Muslim, and however, I'm trying, this is, uh, this is um, uh, pointed to Bo Williams. I just followed you on Twitter. I'm Brown Pundit on Twitter. And I'm trying to work with the Poetry Society of America downtown to organize Muslim poets, American Muslim poets, so that we can take that program forward. And I think hearing you tonight, being inspired by you tonight, 
I think they're going to need your pep talk down there, and I'm going to contact you for that. Thank you. Great, thank you. The, the mics are somewhere out there. Just speak if you have it, and we're going to keep going so we can address a lot of these before we get out. Yeah. Oh, I'm not, I'm not, I'm Shilpa, I'm a filmmaker. I, I'm not sure if this is a question, but I mean, I'm South Asian. I literally grew up in New York and New Jersey, and I didn't realize it till later, but we were one of the first families to integrate the suburbs. And like, people used to throw bricks at our windows. So I really wasn't surprised when Donald Trump won. It's like, those people didn't go away. Mm -hmm. Some of their kids I went to school with and were arguing with me on Facebook every time I would put a joke up about him. And we went through this after 9-11, which is going back to your point. You know, I was asked, are you supporting terrorism? for wanting to show like anti-hate crimes videos. We were two in and working together at Center for Asian American Media, which is a division of PBS. The wars were starting, like were they gonna lose their funding? You know, we've been through all this before. We formed our own spaces and collectives and election night, I was with some friends who were like, this is exactly like 9-11, we have to, you know, a lot of us have grown out of that, people have had kids now, or some people were actually invited to the White House like 15 years later after being secretly underground and like doing organizing work all these years, you know, and I don't know what the answer is to any of this, you know, but yeah, it's very frustrating to keep going through these cycles again and again. Uh, let's have one or two, yeah, these two hands back here. If you would just pass the mic back behind you, if you could do that right to there. And uh, let's hear from the two of you, and then we're going to let the panel have some last words. All right, thank you. Um, my name is Shoshana Vogel. I live on Staten Island. Um, spent probably the last 12 years as an activist in, on the West Coast. Came back home, and Staten Island's rough. Um, I appreciate all of you so much for being here and everybody in the audience. What you're saying, I'm feeling you because I grew up, it made me the activist that I've always been, because I grew up in the midst of severe hate, severe. I mean, my brother got his head bashed in by the principal of my school in elementary school. The principal did that. But, you know, I felt like, okay, I knew that authority was not for me early, and it was a weird kind of a blessing because I knew what I had to fight always. Just intuitively, I always knew that there was hatred. And so I wasn't surprised either and um, even kind of offended at some people's shock and newfound guttedness. Because for the last, since 2012, since I came back to New York, I've been so, I mean, really since 2014, but just shut down. So shut down. I've been a fighter my whole life and so shut down because Eric Garner took care of me. He was my neighbor around the corner. And every time I would go to the bus, he looked out for me in ways my dad never did. You know, that my dad is not black, but you know, like Eric knew that we, we, we stand for each other. And when they killed him, it just like, I was just done. And I never thought that that would happen to me. So it's okay, I'm coming back, I'm good. That wasn't, there's other personal things in my family that made that happen. But I'm just reminded about the potential for fear. And so I've always thought of myself as fearless and I know that I am, despite this wake up, even for me, about that. So I'm just grateful for everyone to be here and for the inspiration that you have and it feels good to actually put my voice amongst yours, so thank you. Thank you.
Hi, I'm short, so I'm going to stand up. My name is Anjanette Levert, and I run the documentary forum at City College of New York. And so what I'm hearing, like what I'm just hearing right now is the fatigue that people of color who are filmmakers, media makers, and also um, attempting to actually do the news are, you know, just like this woman said, done. And now to like be in this kind of climate right now where diversity, like everyone's warning diversity. Oh, we just came to the party, although we've been here for this whole time. So I think that I'm looking at how I can help the people who come to my organization and the people who are looking to get into, um, into creating, um, I kind of think of it as this is an opportunity to document because so much of our histories were not documented previously, but what else can be done? Because in a way, I also think that just anything that, is, that we create in and of itself is political. So I'm looking at, okay, what, you know, people are coming together, you know, because of the, um, because of what I do, people are looking to me as kind of like, okay, a leadership thing. What, what should we be doing? So I am also interested in hearing from this, especially because we have a history that's already preceded us. And so now what can we do to kind of um, circumvent that? So thank you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think we're going to just hear from the panel, have some last words before we move out of here. Um, I know everybody wants to say something, so I mean, I, I teach documentary at UC Santa Cruz and work with all these kids who want to try to change the world with documentary and try to bring people's stories out. And I, my, I agree with the question about distribution. How can we get this work to people? Is film really an empathy machine? Is that true? Or are people just turning the dial, you know? And what can we do to, you know, help people open their eyes? I think it's really important. So, Ruth? Yeah, Walter? want to hear from you. Um, just quickly, I, I wanted to pick up on something um, that Imani said and was also echoed, um, that I think that we're going to see the, the importance of being visible as a form of politics, and that could mean being in the street, being together in the room to, to see other bodies together. This is what Bo is talking about. But also, when you mentioned, Imani, that um, how African-American communities started to record as witnesses what happened. This was kind of for white hegemonic, um, and, and it goes back to imperialist, you know, control of the gays. This was the end of the world. I mean, many, Obama was the end of the world, but, but this, was, this was something that was highly dangerous and needed to be taken care of in a, in a way, and you had this huge backlash arise to many things, but now we have Trump. And, this kind of, when I talked about this aesthetic of menace, I really didn't mean it in a high intellectual manner, although I used the word aesthetic. It is, we are having intimidation at a grassroots level all the time. We, we also have it on Twitter. Um, we, we're, if you write about Trump, and uh, you, you get tons of hate mail, um, hate Twitter, you, people try to shut you down, right? So I think that being visible um, and thinking about what that means and not being living in fear and going out. And, and each person has their way of being visible. Some will 
some will do what Bo is doing and be physically together. Some, maybe you can be visible through your pen and writing for certain places. Um, I like to write for CNN because I get, I, I reach America, a certain America. I get hate and nice letters from people all over the world and steel workers and it's not like writing for the New York Review of Books. It's a different thing. So that's all I wanted to say. This question of visibility uh, is going to be really key and, and the body. I'm really glad that Bo mentioned even with the mic. We, 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 have to re we have to remember that images begin and end and words begin and end with bodies. And assembly. Um, so, in turn, by way of closing comments, I just want to run through this list. Um, I feel like the last two years, and Ruby and I have talked about this, there's been a lot of wonderful work that's being done, I think, that's adding a necessary complication to the way that we think of the capacity around the idea of black film. Francis Badomo's Everybody Dies, Anna Rose Holmer's The Fits, Jatovia Gary's An Aesthetic Experience, Raul Peck's I'm Not Your Negro, the work of Kevin Jerome Everson, the work of Terrence Nance, Josh Losey's Hunter Gatherer, Stephen Winter's Jason and Shirley, and Barry Jenkins' Moonlight. A primer. Um, I, I myself think about documentary from making a little bit myself and from being with people in China and here that do it and teaching about it. I've come to think of it more as an event than a thing, more as an occasion where people can come together for a particular kind of purpose. And I don't know if my opinion of this has been indeed infected by you know the social media turn and, and the fact that we you know so everybody has a camera everybody is now this what the citizen documentary you know brigade and so forth but actually this is this is not at all a bad thing this is a wonderful thing it's not everything there you know but uh there are virtuosos among us virtuosi artists and makers but um but treating you know the the, the occasion for documentation as, as a kind of social possibility and a way of bringing people together in order to do it is something that um, we might want to really consider. Um, just a couple of quick things. One is um, I think it's important to keep in mind in this moment that the risk is not distributed equally. Mm -hmm. um, and that we need to do the work of not just um, Sort of attending to our own risk, but 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 really the situatedness of, of people who are in incredibly vulnerable positions. Um, uh, the second uh, piece of that is that there are people who have been doing organizing work for literally decades, um, who uh, can teach a lot of us who have come who are coming to it more recently. It's important to to listen. Um, and the last thing, which is a piece of that, is a quote from Ida B. Wells, that people must know before they can act. It's really important to understand how power works, how systems work. Um, there's an urgency to the moment, but um, an informed ur urgency is much more uh, meaningful and effective than one that is not. Beautiful. Um, 
I'll find you, sir, afterwards. We have an uh, Islamophobia action group already here in New York City and other organizations that we're working with on that front, so we'll talk. Um, and uh, I'll, don't, I'll... Don't use the mic. I can barely hear you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll... Uh, just, just two things. Uh, putting, putting my my writer filmmaker hat on for a second. Um, you know, in terms of visibility or distribution, I think visibility is a good way to put it. I mean, part of it is is knowing what you want to achieve. Now, there are some things that are, are more propaganda, and I don't necessarily use that in a bad way. There's bad propaganda, there's good propaganda, and it's about getting to as many eyes as possible. Um, and it tends to be cruder, um, uh, but it, it serves a purpose. Then there's um, pieces of art that are uh, very complex and nuanced and may not find a big audience. Um, but that's okay because, you know, it's like what did they say about the Velvet Underground? Only a thousand people ever bought an album and then they all started bands, right? Yeah. So, yeah, <laughs> right, right. Yeah, so, so you, might, you might make a film that only ends up in, in one small or two small film festivals uh, somewhere in the country, but for all you know, one of the people that watches it is going to be the President of the United States in 20 years, um, or is going to be someone who's inspired to become a filmmaker themselves who's making work that's reaching a lot more eyes. I mean, it's, it's all drops in a very big river, um, and every drop has equal weight in the sense that no, no one of them can comprise the river in and of itself. And then the other thing um, is I think that you know artists on all fronts uh, whether it's writers or filmmakers or painters, photographers, musicians, what have you, um, have to be you know realize that in America, up until this point, for a lot of artists, not all artists in America, um, you really haven't had to worry about personal safety or freedom um, to the degree that artists in other parts of the world have, where you could get uh, killed for the work that you do and be prepared for are you willing to take the risk to make art that could put you in danger? Um, and that's a valid question to ask yourself. And you might f feel, you know, your family's too important to you for them to lose you, or to you for you to be imprisoned, or for you to lose your job. Um, but I think that's a question that we should begin asking ourselves now in terms of where's your invisible line, so that you're prepared to go all the way up to the edge of it. I, I just want to. Thank Ruby but, um, for bringing us all together and wanted to suggest that we all partake not only in action, very importantly, I agree, right, words aren't actions, but that we all also partake in some form of the study of the history of fascism all over the world because we have a lot to learn. And there's already a lot of on people who have gathered online that are doing these um, kind of international reading groups on fascism because we, we will be prepared for action. Well, I think I have nothing more to, to add, but <laughs> I think it's, uh, it's, it's really important to, to, well, not just make films, but to create these groups to discuss the films, to, to bring the experience of working and seeing and discussing together. I, I, I had the experience of being um, a director of a film festival in Lisbon, and we, we opened a new section, Cinema of Urgence. It's this kind of cinema that it's made by citizens. Er, every, everybody has a camera nowadays. But these films usually are seen by people together in front of a computer. 
So for us, it was very, very important to open this new section to bring these films that we don't know if we can call them cinematographic forms, mm -hmm. to bring them to, to a, a cinema, to, to a room, mm -hmm. and to discuss them all together. And I think this is Films of, very of urgency, is that what you said? Cinema yeah. of urgency. Urgency. That's great. Walter, I think that's a great idea. Walter, I think you wanted to say something. Uh, uh, I don't know how to uh, clean this up, <laughs> but uh, it's a story about Senator Joseph McCarthy. And when he made his first speech about communists in government. It was just an ordinary speech he made, I think, in Pennsylvania. Uh, about 200 communists in the State Department, something like this, something like that. But it hit the papers immediately. On the front page, his accusations. And he came down the next morning, and there was a bunch of reporters already waiting for him. And he was carrying a rolled up newspaper. And he held it up. And he said, fellas, you know what I got here? A sock full of shit. And I thought about that because it's what we're going to get hit with, really. And I think it's very important we start learning how to deal with it. That's it. Well. Perfect ending. This is the start of trying to figure out how to deal with it. Um, let's keep it going. All of you up here in the panel, think about um, putting something into film quarterly. We'll start trying to jumpstart this conversation and keep it going. If you didn't get a journal, they're down here. And um, I can't say it's exactly a journal of urgency, but it's at least a journal that invites urgency among what it does. And you've been a terrific, terrific crowd here tonight. And I won't say audience. You've been much too active to say audience. But it's been a great experience. And I thank you for the faith that you all had in coming here and opening up to this opportunity and to what everybody's had to say. Thank you so much. The close-up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center is produced by Michael Odemark. Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe to The Close-Up on iTunes and Stitcher. The Film Society of Lincoln Center is a nonprofit arts organization based in New York City, supported by individuals just like you. Founded in 1969 to celebrate American and international cinema, the Film Society presents year-round programming recognizing established and emerging filmmakers, supporting important new work, and enhancing awareness, accessibility, and understanding of the moving image. To learn more about what we do and support the Film Society by becoming a member, visit filmlink.org, F-I-L-M-L-A-N-C.org. The Film Society of Lincoln Center. Film lives here.